Welcome to Chris Judd's Masters of the Market, a podcast giving everyday investors access to some of the best and brightest minds in the Australian investing landscape. Today's episode is brought to you by Think Markets, the trading platform where you could trade Forex, shares, CFDs, indices, and commodities. Today I was lucky enough to sit down with Scott Williams. Scott Williams, I feel, is a future star of the Australian funds management landscape. His hedge fund's only one year old and based out of WA, but he's got a unique view on the world, and I was really grateful for him to give up some of his time. Scott Williams, thanks for joining uh, Masters of the Market. I know you're very busy, so I appreciate you taking the time to sit down for a chat. No, thank you for having me. Uh, good to catch up while we're in Melbourne. So I just wanted to start by, I guess, getting a feel for your, your introduction to investing. When did you first start investing and uh, what were your early experiences with it? Uh, I probably started in, it was around university time and I guess I sort of, I originally was going to be in physiotherapy and I guess I, I met a stockbroker and was interested in the market and, and got um, uh, maybe swayed by the money and it was the middle of the mining boom in uh, West Australia. So a lot of people were making a lot of money very easily um, and yeah, probably got interested from that and then, you know, changed my degree and, and I'm a, a person, I guess, that I'm very persistent and I got in the industry basically when I was at university, I, I called through the yellow pages, you probably remember the yellow pages, um, uh, A to Z and, and got a work experience gig for a few weeks at a broking firm called Zurich Securities, the last one I called after many no's after the GFC when it was a big clean out of the industry. Um, and yeah, started doing that and remained in the market. Uh, I, I asked them if I could continue going there and made coffees for about six months. and. Um, yeah, eventually finished my degree and I finished that and uh, yeah, ended up getting sort of into the market eventually. Um, it was tough when the resource uh, downturn happened, rent rent resource. I don't know if you remember Kevin Rudd putting in that, that tax. Yeah, eventually got into to broking um, and I did that for about six years and then, uh, you know, my, my time through uni and I guess I've done a little bit of everything in terms of, you know, technical analysis, day trading, got into broking, you know, that, that took second to, I guess, client investment, understanding uh, portfolio structuring, you know, doing statements of advice for clients, financial advice. Um, and yeah, I guess just investing and then and then in particular in the broking career, learning a lot about the the corporate side. Um, you know, we were a small firm that did a lot of uh, corporate advisory work internally, so um, IPOs, roadshowing companies, you know, setting up meetings over in Melbourne, Sydney, across Australia, um, or or other other places, and you know, raising capital for businesses, getting them access from you know, and seeing the whole cycle. You know, we used to do seed investment in a, a company prior to listing um, and then take it through to IPO, you know, bring on new clients, et cetera, build the business, watch it grow, and then, you know, have an exit obviously at some point. Um, and our typical model would be, you know, a business that was say sub 25 mil market cap listing, uh, typically either re like resources was probably the strong point being in West Australia. Yeah. And then, um, you know, they'd, they'd go through the cycle and, and top of the cycle, ideally try and hopefully have a successful exit many times the price that we got in at. Um, and learning about that model and, and we've tried to sort of blend that with our fund as well, I guess. And who were the brokers when you first started out in Perth that you, you sort of looked up to or, or had some really good learnings of? Um, I mean, where I worked, I learned a lot from uh, my boss there. We worked very closely at the time. It was a very small firm that people wouldn't have heard of. Um, what was that firm? Was that Tri Triple C Consulting. I left uh, Zurich. That was where I did my, my work experience. But again, it was all. there's a lot of smaller, um, I guess, firms that do corporate sort of breaking. And it's definitely, it's becoming a bigger thing now. Um, a lot of people are leaving the bulge brackets and doing it, um, you know, these small independents. 
Um, and that's probably just a, a, a function of the industry changing. It's really moving, probably the broking industry is moving from that uh, corporate side to a fees under or f- funds under management service and trying to, I guess, do a bit of a fund management model, um, but still by selling. So maybe it's potentially a bit conflicted. So a lot of things have changed due to regulation, probably in the last few years in particular. Um, and it's, I mean, if you look overseas as well in the UK, that's changed. And I, I believe there'll probably be a lot of changes to, you know, research and, and how things are, I guess, reported here as well. Um, so in the industry, I mean, you know, I, I guess I've always had a, a pull more toward funds management. Um, and I mean, you, your key investors probably, you know, the, the ones you read about that are like the George Soros, the Drucker Millers, the, the stories from the 80s, I think, are always really inspiring and then as we've sort of discussed things on real vision and 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 sort of getting access it's great now in the world with social media and stuff you can follow guys a lot easier and like things like this like the podcasts and i like to share and give back our story as well and everyone's got a different story and it's about how interesting it is i guess and learning new things one of the things i I don't think people over on the east coast of australia really have a, a clear picture of the difference between how um Perth brokers and Perth deals work compared often to Melbourne and, and Sydney-based uh, deals. Can you explain to listeners what uh, what the difference is, what the difference in capital structures is, or often vending in projects and uh, things that resource investors or retail investors need to look out for when they're investing in those sorts of deals? I think um, the size of what the deal is and what it is. I mean, being in West Australia, probably it's more resource-focused because yeah. that's, that's what it's come from. Um, the structuring side, you know, it depends, as I said, on the size as to what you can negotiate or do. In the very smaller micro end, you tend to get, people look at, there's a number of ways. So for example, an IPO, which is an initial public offering, first listing uh, on the market, typically that company is fresh coming through. So has it raised money previously? What prices did it raise at? The seed, as they'd call it, seed investment. Um, like Uber, for example, on the big scale just listed, um, at a valuation much bigger than what you'd see in, in the smaller mining companies. But I guess how do you value the company if on its drilling and there's a, it's a lot more opaque, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you call it moose pasture if it's you know not got many drill holes in it or something. How do you value an asset like that? And typically what you find is, I think West Australian investors in particular are more happy to have a, have a punt or um, more risk on. They will invest... You know, on a on a drill hole uh, out in the middle of near Kalgoorlie on you know a gold hit, and how do you value that asset really? Um, and a lot of it t- comes down to cycles and turning. So, for example, when I guess lithium gets uh, you know EV theme and lithium's running, a lot of people may look for where the money's going and where they can raise money easily and structure deals. So you know, it's it's probably a function of the industry that we're in and I think any industry where there's money you know be it horse racing or gambling there's people that can probably exploit very easily other people willing to have a have a go at things and I guess our role as a fund manager is we now review these things in detail look through prospectuses as I said the disclosures are quite um, they're always there to find and it's just a matter of how hard you look so I guess that comes back down to a function of how much you're investing in certain things and I guess a pitfall of the retail investor is they tend to get caught late cycle. So, you know, lithium had already had a big run and the price had already increased significantly, yet a lot of deals were coming through the pipe because they were willing to throw more money at these, these, you know, projects in the middle of Africa that probably never get developed or never get financed. Um, Yet you can sell the dream. You can sell this dream very easily. And I find, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is, they either risk too much where they don't know or they don't know enough history about that asset or yeah. people behind it. 
Do you think it's almost people and capital structure for a lot of those smaller Perth deals and people and free cash flow or potential for free cash flow for your more traditional type stock investments are the main things to get your head around? We used to always say, um, you know, it's the people, it's the project and it's the capital structure. So you ideally you want a small amount of shares on issue. Um, the company's either, you know, coming to market at an attractive valuation or cheap. Um, you know, and it could be relative to peers or relative to future cash flows. Or yeah. the the issue that you have with those mining plays, they sell the dream because I mean, a lot of them they're hundreds of millions of dollars away from even getting that first dollar out of the project. I mean, a lot of these deposits are hundreds of meters below the ground. You know, you need infrastructure, you need plants, you need milling, um, whatever it is that you require. It requires a lot more financing. Yeah. So it's always about reducing the dilution and having the price go up so they you tend to pump the stocks up i think a lot of the west coast people may we used to joke that by the time you're getting pitched a west coast resource deal from the east coast it's time to sell um and i mean you know that it's also a time of the market to be honest i mean if the market is uh really hot and you can get money easily you probably see a lot more things that will never get developed and the stock could go to hundreds of millions market cap and then turn into nothing and there's probably there's a graveyard of those uh, listed, but the the appeal, I guess, to people is, oh, it, it five bagged or six bagged, you know, being a, a five times your money or six times your money or 10 times your money. Those stories of guys getting rich off these hits, I think attracts those sort of investors and, and potentially there's a lot of hot money that goes into it and the pitfalls of the the chase, I think, catch a lot of people out. And my probably advice with that is, is if you don't know the people or the structure of the deal, you, you need to invest what you're willing to lose or have a level where you will get out or what gets you out of the trade. So, I mean, we try and always uh, size accordingly and more importantly, have a what gets me out of the trade as opposed to on the upside and downside. Yeah, I've seen people make, you know, 10, 15 times their money and not want to take a dollar out of the table, 30 times their money, in, you know, in some instances and they don't want to sell. And it's quite, um, I guess people become... Uh, captured with the the story sometimes as opposed to the economic reality of getting one of those projects off the ground and as the cycle turns down and prices fall again or supply rises in that particular commodity it drops again so um it's about timing the cycle very much and not being on the wrong side of it so about 13 months into uh the birth of your your hedge fund effectively 51 capital what's the uh, what's the investment philosophy behind that so, I mean, we when I set the fund up, I wanted to, I believe a very late cycle, as I mentioned, you don't want to be on the wrong side of a cycle. So we wanted to be able to invest globally um, and be able to short sell in particular, um, you know, bearish sort of the Aussie dollar and I guess potentially Australia in, in some regards um, and just have access to more businesses. So when we set it up, that was sort of our premise to be able to, you know, not, not limit ourselves in terms of opportunity that may arise. Obviously, we, we do a lot in the smaller, I guess, mining and, and resource space and, and capital market space. But typically, our philosophy is um, we really try to focus on high conviction ideas so that are te- typically we find we're counter-cyclical, contrarian investors that have high conviction in ideas, so um, have done a lot of work in companies. And we tend to be focused on, say, you know, four to eight positions that might be a, you know, four to eight percent weighting of the farm. Um, and those thematics as well, we tend to find we, we have other smaller investors that, that part on those, those same themes. Um, so, you know, things like uranium we're interested in at the moment or gold we quite like as well. Um, and then other companies uh, within, I guess, those spaces that we drill down on. 
And then we try to hedge those returns because, you know, obviously they can swing up and down with uh, short selling and other mispricing or shorter term trading opportunities that come along, be it a well-priced IPO or a um, overvalued business that we, we think, you know, is going to fall or where um, just the market being overvalued, you could short the index, for example, um, which we've sort of been doing a bit recently and it's been uh, fortuitous for us. So, um when the other positions that we believe longer term in and have a longer term horizon uh, may be at the detriment of a market move, we want to try and profit and, and hedge that volatility and exposure for our investors. So it's a nice, steady, smooth uh, rise. I mean, we obviously get paid to perform and, and make money for clients, and that's our. Um, it's in much of our interest as theirs to protect the capital. And you perform very well, up at twenty four percent in the first thirteen months. You've got some uniqueness to your fund, uh, largely around uh, the way you use media and, and also the way you um, access some of the fees brokers make on deals and then distribute that back into the fund holders. You just want to walk through that? I guess being a past broker, um, I have experienced it and, and benefited from, from those sort of things firsthand. And in terms of our research, I used to write like a weekly newsletter and I try to, you know, provide a bit more context and colour as to around what we do. And, um, you know, a lot of people follow that and enjoy that. And, um, you know, we, I like to share, I think, you know, sharing information as you do now and with people, it's a great way to learn and test your thesis. And we, we typically will have a thesis on any position we take to, you know, are we wrong? What's our risk? And, and I like to test those on an ongoing basis. So the way we do it with our, I guess, other research or insights into a company as I sort of mentioned with brokers or listing a company, there's, there tends to be a lot of, um, I guess, opportunity for them to have additional leverage. And, and so by, for example, cap raising for a company, um, a broker may raise money and do research and offer. They're there essentially the gatekeepers to the investors. And if they think it's a good idea, the investors will, will follow and buy. So, um, you know, we see ideas all the time um but typically the deals the way a broker works is they need to sell and find the next deal all the time and i just thought the model could be so much better that the research that we get from brokers is typically conflicted it's i don't believe a lot of it is in detail enough to um a lot of the time things get missed i mean and you know tesla's a great example now I just see all these buy recommendations and as the price falls, they just downgrade and move the targets lower to just fit with the price. And you've seen it on other things like Blue Sky or, or other examples that I guess the short sellers won. Um, and so I, I guess it, it comes with a certain level of um, uh, conflict. So our model was really, well, if we find a small business and typically, you know, as, as I sort of mentioned, it's a function of size, but typically at below 100 mil market cap, a lot of those businesses are undiscovered or under-resourced and they really want to attract people and get the story out there um, you know we try to network and talk with other funds and we have a lot of clients ourselves um, within our investors and if if we mandate with the company and you know do a lot of work and want to share that work it requires a bit more more work I guess on our behalf to publish yeah. a note rather than just being in my you know file of uh, company notes and, and meetings with companies and it's, when it goes to a public domain, it does take a lot more work and we put a lot more risk out there. We also you know, probably forego a lot of fees in terms of other people wanting to make investments in these companies. Should it do what we believe over the longer period, and we typically will try and find things that are the you know, three to five year view with those companies, if we can find them early enough and bring people to it, and, and our, 
I have a massive uh, focus on our brand. So yeah. short selling reports that come out and they put out a note and a stock drops. If a good investor goes into a stock, like a Buffett, for example, people yeah. instantly go look at that. So I'm very cognizant of the fact if we can build a good brand and offer good research that's different, buy side research, um, people will, will value our opinion. So I'm very selective as the deals that we do. And as compensation from the company, we will request you know options that may otherwise go to a broker. So um, we will sort of take a longer term position. We, we would like to think our capital that we offer co- companies is um, longer term, supportive, yeah. you know, able to help them, I guess, message to market and other fund managers. You know, we, we meet hundreds of companies every year. We, we sort of know what they want to see. And, and, and a lot of the time you might meet a company and we might say something that others won't and for some reason maybe the message or just isn't getting across right or we have different context uh, on that business due to you know discussions with other supply or other companies or stakeholders in other places or, or industry contacts. And about, I guess, putting that together in a way that people can understand and it's a, you know, our thesis on the business that others might have overlooked or not seen. Um, and as we said, we you know we'll negotiate options that otherwise may go to a broker or um, a corporate advisor to do that research, um, and we return that to our investors. And that asymmetric upside, you know, was probably the thing that changed my model from the broking side. Like, um, if you're selling a product to someone and you're getting you know millions of free options or getting paid fees on cap raisings and things, I just thought it's conflicted in a way and um, we, it's probably just a better way to do it. And by giving back to our investors, if they make more money, you know, we get more funds under management, we can do bigger deals, you know, better deals, offer companies more and just focus on maintaining that brand recognition. And, and as I said, we're a fund manager first. Um, it's really our core business to make sure that our client's capital is safe and returning in a non-volatile fashion. Um, but if we can, you know, gain extra upside or leverage during these sort of research deals and things, we will. And I'd like to think that if we take, you know, publish research, people want to read it. Um, I get hundreds of emails every day from broker research or sell side research. And, um, you know, it, it typically doesn't get read that often because it's, there's some sort of conflict there or they're wanting us to go into a cap raising or, um, you know, you're going to take it with a grain of salt. And, you know, it's same with us, I guess. You know, we have an agenda. We obviously own shares in the position. We are going to benefit if the price rises, but we put a lot of risk on the line and we, we do have our money and clients' money invested in these stories. So, um, you know, we're really putting it out there, I guess, in a way that everything you see is someone trying to sell you something and yeah. obviously we benefit but um try to do a different do a different model change it and so you talk about the time spent to produce those research notes and obviously the time spent researching an investment uh before you pull the trigger generally throughout your investment process what's the time frame that you you'll generally spend researching a, a company and uh and a thematic before you're willing to to write a check it comes down to the level of conviction so as I said before, if you like a deal or know someone and um, you want to go into something, it depends on what you're willing to risk. So we look at it in a similar regard, I guess, with the fund. If I'm going in a higher conviction position, I will know a lot about the business, the market, everything sort of inside out. That can take that can take sometimes months, as I yeah. sort of mentioned to you about a recent thing we've been looking at with the, the fuel cycle um, in terms of uh, changes with the petroleum industry and the, the shipping. Um, yeah, that's taken months and I've still yet to come to a valid conclusion because it's difficult to measure the risk to reward on that trade and and I've yet to find, I guess, the alpha capture strategy that I was originally, that thesis that I had, um, I've yet to find the 
the trade that will allow me to capture that yeah. for a relative risk reward. So, um, you know, I can give you an example of something that didn't work. Um, and in, in the biotech space, we, we played on a company that, um, you know, was looking to cure Alzheimer's or not cure, but have a, a treatment for that, who um, I guess had really good preclinical stuff. It looked, it was a different model. They were using a um, cortisol hypothesis, not a beta amyloid, which is the typical one that had, had a lot of failures. I guess Alzheimer's is the graveyard for most um, companies going after. But on the flip side, the returns would be significant. You would almost 10 bag and go up, you know, 10 times within, I would say, six to 12 months, you'd have a huge deal on the table from pharma should you achieve uh, statistical significance in that trial. So, you know, it, everything looks great, but how much can you really risk on those deals? And, you know, we might typically look at something like a, a 30 to 50 basis point risk given, okay, I think the downside's 70% on the position. I'm willing to lose, say, 20 basis points, how much, and then size it accordingly. Um, so, you know, that's, again, we don't blow up on those sort of things. We, yeah. we try to have very strict money management rules when you find a position and relative to the level of conviction. I mean, if you... Um, if you knew or could somehow, I mean, that is, you can't do, but if you could somehow work out that you were going to you know, win on that trade or your thesis is correct and we can go much bigger, then we allow, I guess, we can do more work to have more conviction. Um, so, like, for example, uranium is a big high conviction position for us um, because I can sort of see the downside being limited. So we look for those asymmetric return uh, opportunities. So in the position I'm going to put 8% of our fund in, um, you know, I want to be very certain that I'm not going to lose, say, more than 2% of our assets on that position. So I sort of look at in a way that how much can I, how big can I get before I lose 2% and how conviction is it? If I'm, you know, almost 90 or, say, you know, above 80% high probability this I'm correct due to XYZ research and, and map it out, um, how do we then size that position to capture as much upside relative to if we'd lose and I'm wrong, we're only going to lose small. So I said that, that win-loss rate is something that amateur investors often focus on, how often they're getting an investment right. There's a lot of the pros spend more time 50%. doing what you do and, and talk about getting the size of the investment right. And really that's, that's where the greater performances come from. 100%. All the, the fundamentals around... Australia, around the world, because I mean, even Buffett's what he shoots sixty percent, doesn't he? Mate, I mean, as the world's greatest fifty percent. When I first learned trading, um, my mentor taught me always try and make two times what you risk on the trade. Yeah. So if you make two times what you lose every time, or you lose small, um, and <clears throat> there's some excellent day, day traders out there, and you know, I chat to a number of them, I guess, but no, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. It's, it's um, <laughs> I don't have the uh, I'm. I worked out very quickly. I'm not a very good day trader. I much yeah. prefer investing. I like sleeping at night and not yeah. worrying. But the thing that makes them successful is they lose small. Yeah. And they, your hit rate is you know 50 to 60%. Even the best investors yeah. don't get them all right. So it's about losing small when you're wrong and winning big when you're big. And if you can let your winners ride, you will outperform all the time. So, you know, and even like look at private equity, you know, they might have... 10 deals and seven of them, they lose 100%. You know, two of them, maybe they break even and one goes up 80 times. You know, they end up making huge profit. Um, but it's about finding those deals. It's very difficult to do, but it comes down to your risk management. It's the same, you know, I, I listened to a book and um, or read a book uh, called Thinking in Bets. And, you know, I guess everyone with markets sort of thinks about poker or yeah. other things. And I think 
when you can weigh up your risk on a hand and probability, like, you know, as soon as I get dealt two cards in poker, I can work out sort of what my probability is I could win the hand relative to what everyone else, and I don't know their cards. And as more things get shown, I guess, to you, you can work out, okay, I should bet more now because things are going in my favor. Sure, you can get cleaned out at the end and it's exactly the same as the market, but I guess it's about making sure you've put it in your favor and you try not, you don't blow up. It's about money management as much as it is about picking the right ideas. Yeah. So you talk about the risk in, in, in investing in a particular stock or an idea, then as of 13 months ago, you started your own fund and that's a different risk altogether. I guess you've, um, you've got your identity now cooked up with, with a business and something you're really passionate about. What, what were those feelings of actually taking the plunge, putting your balls on the line, so to speak, and um, starting 51? Yeah, look, it's, um, I guess someone said it to me, uh, an older and wiser uh, person said to me recently, um, you're probably uh, young enough and dumb enough or naive enough to try, yeah. but you've got enough uh, you know, skill you could probably pull it off. And I think, as you said, it probably comes down to passion and what yeah. you, know, you want to get out of bed and you want to do it. Um, and, you know, I was just in the fortunate enough position where, you know, we, I guess, had enough sort of backing that we could sort of start. And it probably, you know, it's more expensive to run the fund. And I guess everyone sort of gets stars in their eyes in a way. And we were sort of discussing even the pitfalls of, you know, certain career choices. And sometimes it looks a lot better and you don't see all the back end work and working on the all weekend and, you know, checking the market or, or having alerts go off or people calling you all the time. There's, there's probably other things that are, and there's definitely positives and I love the industry. And I love what I do. Um, and there's good things that come from it as much as there is bad. Um, but you know, that's any industry, you know, yeah. professional surfing was, I used to surf a lot and think that's the best. And then the travel, like being away from your family yeah. or there's things that will, you know, there's a double edge to everything. Um, so, you know, I took the plunge and we've been going well so far and definitely, you know, at the start, it's harder to think raising capital from people you don't know as much because they don't know uh, your style or they don't yeah. know what you do. And that's why it's important to try and, I guess, talk about it and provide research or, or our notes that I try to do on a monthly basis in a bit more detail, um, just to give some more context about those returns that you're generating. They're real. They've come from things. Yeah. And, and I guess the business model with the, the research side and the asymmetric side, it's very different. It's very unique. And... Um, you know, sharing that research and, and putting it out there, it, it's sort of, I guess some people don't understand exactly how it works, but, you know, on the risk side, I've also been on the beneficiary side of, of, of those options coming in the money and turning into, to, you know, great returns for very little risk. And I, I just, I guess, had confidence that you can do that and return to investors and we would outperform. The original thesis was that, you know, if we charge 1.5% management fee, if I can generate 1.5% return from additional, yeah. I guess, return from options or other things, it would cover the cost of the investor's money being in. And we get we get paid when we perform, so the performance fee, you know, would help us to run the business. So, so far, so good. And it's, as I said, about finding more deals and maintaining a, a good track record. So a huge risk to the business if your first 30 months had been down 20%. Fortunately for you, it's up uh, 24% or so in that time frame. What are the risks of having such a good start to the fund um, psychologically and what are the sort of watch outs that you, you're keeping an eye on? Definitely. I mean, we, you know, we have to be above our high water mark, um, so the highest point the fund has been uh, to generate any you know, uh, performance fees. So that always, as I mentioned, the drawdown risk is, is significant. Um, you know, we, were, we were very lucky in the fact that 
we sort of have a bearish bias to the market and coming into that Q4 period when it was extremely volatile, um, we were sort of positioned much more on the short side and long gold. Um, so we sort of, our core positions didn't detract from our performance as much. Um, as I mentioned, we're probably in a higher cash balance relative to what you know we'd probably like to be as a long short fund, but it is very difficult on both sides. Even, you know, it, and just as an example, in uh, April, the market was sort of still rallying quite strong and we were taking much more of a bearish bias as we had it sort of in October and December. Um, and we were getting drawn down from our shorts. I mean, the shorts were just hurting the whole time and we still managed to be you know, slightly positive, I think like 10 basis points or something high. Um, but, you know, that saved us this month in May as the market's fallen again. Um, but you can get very volatile swings and we're very cognizant of the fact that it's important to protect that capital and protect that risk. Um, and as we sort of uh, you know, discussed just before, money management is probably the key thing that most people need to, to look at in terms of their performance. And if something goes against me and I try to you know, reduce exposure or if it's going the right way, try to add to it. I find um, the difference between probably more experienced investors and not is people struggle to chase. They always chase the wrong way. You want to average down on positions that are going against you. That's the natural thing like, oh, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right but you may not be. Yeah. So we sort of probably look at it the other way that it's almost better to build a position as it's going in your favour. Mm. Um, you know, potentially gold's another thing I'd like to build more on in our, in our fund. I think that over the next few years in time frame, um, so how you look at things is probably important in your time frame. You know, we've built a bit of fat into the position, so if it's going to move again with us, why don't we, we build more exposure to it and, and go with that trend and potentially if it gets expensive, you can reduce the exposure again and, and buy back. And there's just different ways that you try to, I guess, manage different positions um, to make very cognizant of the fact of the performance and, and you've got that flame at your back all the time. So, so you've, you, as a fund manager, you've got to manage effectively redemptions through your, your monthly or short-term performance and then you've got to maximise total value creation. If you're just managing your own money, you'd really just be focused on value creation, albeit it might be hard to sleep at night if the, the monthly moves were going against you. How would you invest your money differently if it was just your money and you didn't have to worry about redemptions? I'd probably be in the high-risk end like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, we definitely worry about liquidity um, and it's something that I, I'm very cognizant of that if you get stuck... I mean, we're in a fortuitous position at the moment that we're still relatively small. Um, so you'd be prepared to be in more illiquid stocks if it was just your money and you just had to deal with an angry wife at the end of the day. If it, if it went wrong, <laughs> you'd, be, you'd, you'd still take some more positions in highly illiquid stocks? Oh, I think, you know, when I look at my personal uh, investing, especially through broking and coming from that small cap uh, yeah. area, we are very uh, comfortable there. I mean, yeah. I was, I think we, when we originally sort of met and discussed, I probably didn't have a lot of blue chip sort of exposure, but um, for our clients and when I might pass client book, you cannot do that for a, you know, 70 year old retiree with yeah. their super fund. It's not, you know, prudent money management. So it's um, different, I guess, strokes for different people and very much our client base is probably that more high net worth, um, you know, generally most people accumulate a lot of wealth in the upper end of their life. And yeah. um those sort of people don't want to take risk and we've structured the fund in a way where we ideally can hedge uh, the small cap high growth things that we may be in with large cap short, you know, large cap businesses that we're either short or long. Um, so we're definitely worried about that. And as you mentioned, liquidity should, I mean, we're in a, a position where no unit holder could really pull out their entire capital and it would be detrimental to yeah. the other unit holders. 
Um, so that's something probably as we grow and depending on the size of the allocation that people give to you, typically yeah. it comes probably after year three, um, year three, four. So what sort of percent would someone need to hold in the fund before that would become a risk? Well, I would say majority of our positions are in more liquid names. No, um, I mean, if I'm talking about if, if one investor came in. Investor came in and if they own 15% of the overall fund and then they wanted to liquidate that, does yeah, that put the whole fund would, under threat? I guess it depends level? on how quickly you can liquidate. So as the trustee, we can um, elect and say, look, if we need to pull cash out, it would be too difficult. As I said, I would say until they're at 40%, it That's probably right. would be very difficult right. to... To hurt the other unit holders' returns, yeah. and if it is going to be detrimental, we would need to elect and, and just advise that unit holder may be done over a two or three month That's period. Right. But um, if you know anyone wanting to write that sort of size <laughs> check, you give me a call. All right, <laughs> it's a very, very sophisticated listener to this podcast. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. <laughs> just changing gears for a minute. Uh, a lot of the people, I, or everyone I've sat down with throughout this podcast series. Um, really are positioning their investments based around whether or not the world's going to be in for a period of deflation or a period of inflation. So you've got uh, demographics, automation, AI, um, the lingering effects of globalisation, which have all been uh, deflationary on the economy. And then you've got the inflationary thesis um, based around asset prices are already high, uh, low unemployment, uh, the end of globalisation, at some level and moving potentially towards regional trade. Uh, which side of the coin are you leaning towards uh, currently? Something we've thought about a lot, um, and there's sort of there's definitely great arguments for both sides. And I think we, you know, as we sort of were discussing off air, um, it's such a hard position to work out. Yeah. We as I said, we we sort of spent a bit of time late last year, um, working out whether or not, I guess, what would happen in a currency war. So one of the things that I've seen develop, uh, and I always try and think quite simply about things. Um, you know, I think if you try to overcomplicate stuff, it, it becomes difficult. Um, and you know, you can get bogged down in detail. Um, I call it seeing the matrix. So, you know, seeing the matrix on that, I'm probably not there yet, to be fair. I'm still trying to decide. But one thing that I've I guess simply noticed is the level of central bank debt and things that have built up over the last, you know, pre or post the GFC rather, um, it's almost unprecedented. You've yeah. never seen what is happening at the moment happen before in, in the way that I, or I guess to the scale that it has. Um, you know, stock markets are at record highs. It's been a record long bull cycle. Unemployment is low, yet the US market runs at a huge deficit. I, I look at the market the other day and the, you know, turn on Bloomberg at night and was reading the uh, or watching the the screen and the reporters are saying, at when does you know the the power put coming or when does central bank step in and the market can't even fall three yeah. percent without people going oh the central bank needs to save yeah. us I mean that you know I laugh I was reading a thing you know I'm a bit of a financial history I like um, reading about and like people used to not even really care about the Fed and you know mm. the interest rate cycle and as much as they do now and it's such a you know, the central bank, uh, I guess, backstop for markets has been there for so long. And what happens when it's removed? So my, my concern is that if you're running a deficit at the top of, you know, low unemployment, um, things are good. Uh, what happens when it turns and that debt, 
that balance sheet on the Fed, people start to worry. What, what's it backed by? I mean, yeah. what is a dollar? What is a yes. what is one US dollar? It's it's a promise to pay or a promise to to you know it's it's got a value, but only because someone only because the government says it does. Correct. You can't actually eat it. Or, There's a you can't really store it as a store of value. Correct. And forever. It's very difficult to think about. Where do you go? In an, I said, you know, we have never really experienced a high inflationary environment. Yeah. And I use the um, the example. I went to Argentina on a holiday, you know, Christmas time, and you know, cheap holiday. I said to my yeah. wife, "Hey, the currency's you know disintegrated. It's probably going to be cheap. It's a beautiful country. You go to Patagonia, etc." You went there, and you know, you look on TripAdvisor at a um, restaurant, and the inflation that you saw just on like a, a steak, for example, you know, the price rise over a short period. That inflation and level, and just talking to people and what on the ground there, and the value of their, I guess, currency and concerns about it, the US dollar and, and in particular, I guess, any you know, fiat currency on, in the Western world has been backed by these governments, and everyone trusts them, and it's all good. And yet, when you look behind the scenes, it's they're running a huge deficit. I mean, in China is the one who's buying all these, you know, US Treasuries, and now they're saying, you know, Trumpy's putting this huge protectionist and you can't screw America yet, you're annoying your biggest creditor. Mm. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And I, to be fair, I haven't, I, I haven't got a, a strong view whether we can start to go into a huge deflationary period where um, you know, inflation has really disappeared. But the one thing that sort of got me was I, I read an interesting article and as I sort of mentioned, Bloomberg Week put a, on the front cover of their magazine, like inflation is dead. Mm. And it's probably more of a timing issue. You don't know when exactly it's going to be, but they're very uh, counter-cyclical. You know, Bitcoin's the new currency at $20,000, yet you know, it falls away. And, and people don't believe inflation could be a thing. But when you can't pay back that debt, yeah. the only way they do it is inflation. And the debt level stays the same, but the currency you've got more yeah. of it and you can inflate the debt away so to speak and you know i was born in south africa and you know i know people there and they say that's exactly what happened there the currency devalues and well the you us know, is the only country that can do it though really because well, their debt's in us dollars you're trying mm, to inflate away your debt they've got the benefit of being the world's reserve currency right yeah. so all the emerging markets and and uh people around the world and even in argentina is a perfect example you know they want us dollars because yes. they worry that the value of their own currency is going to drop so you've got all these countries where, um, you know, they're using the US dollar as a backstop. And I know China, you know, is trying to do that through some places and oh, take our debt in our currency. Yeah. You know, you don't need it to be in US dollars or buy oil in our currency, you know. Um, and I think I think the next, you know, we talk about the escalation of the trade war. The US and China, I think the next war it probably is not going to be with you know guns and bullets but it's probably going to be i mean look at the huawei thing and yeah. you know the tech side but currency will probably be where it goes and you know you it's it's a race to the bottom when yeah. you start when all the countries trying to devalue currency to spur on growth yeah. because you can't drop rates any further you know how does that it's going to be huge ramifications around the world and to be honest i've yet to form a strong opinion other than i think gold is going to be a major beneficiary of it yeah and we know that china central banks and Russian Central Bank are buying truckloads of gold mm. at the minute. You mentioned China have greatly reduced their buying of US treasuries. Do you think that just is a nervousness um, around fiat currencies and, and then not wanting to fund the US deficit anymore? Or what mm. do you think is behind that gold buying? Yeah, it's very interesting. As we said, like, you know, currencies used to be pegged to gold, yes. right? It was the 
there was something behind it. And I think when you look back even further in history and the World War Two, the crisis and the great reading, um, I really enjoyed Ray Dalio's piece, like, uh, you know, study of every cycle and um, uh, crisis throughout history. And currency, you know, when they removed the gold, uh, gold peg from yeah. behind it, um, the value or the amount of dollars in the world is just growing and growing and growing and growing. And as we said, what stands behind it? So, you know, I think China and Russia potentially that buying, you know, we, as I said, we sort of did an exercise like where do you hide? You know, what currencies can you be in? I mean, the pound's got all the Brexit issues, the euros, you know, Germany's the strongest economy in, in, in uh, Europe is now you know, in a recession. You've got Greece, you know, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, et cetera. There's, you know, very, I guess, big levels of debt out there. I mean, Switzerland, you know, they, again, they're trying not to have, and they were seeing that, these huge inflows in currency. Um, the Aussie dollar, I mean, if China goes bad, we're going to go bad. You can't put it in China. It's a very hard place to think, okay, what, where do we want to be and how do we, where do we position ourselves? Um, and, you know, you just keep coming back to gold. It's probably one of those inflationary hedges in typically commodities during a cycle where inflation's of concern. People want things of value that are of use. Um or a store of value, and you know, gold typically is a very good beneficiary of that. So we've we've sort of allocated around, I guess, twenty percent of the assets into toward gold, yeah. or that thematic, you know, in um in general, be it physical, be it miners, um, probably less so in Australia due to the I guess they're very expensive our miners. Yeah. Um, but as you can see, the Aussie dollar has been falling off a cliff. So priced in USD, it's their beneficiaries. I think I heard it on Eric Townsend's podcast. Um, he had a guest on who, who has a theory that um, China and Russia will end up creating a, a cryptocurrency that they'll trade with and they'll settle at the end of each month with gold. So that, that crypto will just effectively track who owes what and then each month there'll be a physical shipment of gold gets sent over one way or the other to settle the bill. Have you heard any of these sorts of theories come out? <laughs> I because um, I thought it was a fascinating it is yeah. idea. I love I love listening to all the different opinions, and I try to, as I say, we try to I guess read and listen to all these people and try and deduce a, a strategy around it. And I've yet to see the matrix on what's going to happen there. And I think I was saying to you that the amount of people that have tried to short China or other yeah. places, it's been a the widow maker trade. Um, you just don't want to be first. It's better to to follow the trend. The crypto thing is amazing. I mean, I remember that bubble was just phenomenal. I've never seen hysteria like that and I think my mum almost timed the top within a few days saying <laughs> should we be buying <laughs> buying bitcoin and um, yeah. she's never asked me about anything ever so you know that just shows you the level of hysteria that was around so look I do think it probably has a place I never played it I you know I think I was telling my mate it's a bubble at 3000 and you watch it go to 20 yeah. um you know it's a, it's as hard I, I think um I think whether or not crypto has a place it probably probably does but you know how i don't know and if if something like that comes along and people find value in it it's hard to think about what the psychology of people will be and if their views on the dollar or views on their currency and home currency if, if you don't trust it anymore you need something else to replace yeah. it we're not going to go back to bartering no. so you must have something and it's about i guess when when people start to accept that other currency or other you know be it crypto or uh you know a different Thing that is created due to it um if they see value in it are comfortable in the stability I, I mean when people used to say oh bitcoin will replace dollars i said there's no way it's too volatile as a business owner or something i can't purchase or bhp can't purchase you know 
things using Bitcoin yeah. and then watch it you know, in 30 day payment terms, it yeah, drops exactly. you know, 80% or whatever. You know, yeah, yeah. It's too volatile and stability, if you look at those emerging market currencies, stability is what they want and that's yeah. why they're using US dollars. They peg to those, those currencies to say, well, we don't want to be inflated away. I'd rather earn and have that have a store of value. And it comes back to that store of value question. So whether they're doing it or not and whether it works, it'll be determined by what people believe. Governments tell you that the, you know, don't worry, don't worry. I think I said to you, um, you know, when I, I think, I, I'm trying to remember where we read it, but it was like a the when George Soros, you know, broke the Bank of England and they come out and say, we won't devalue. You know, that's the time. Be the first guy out the door. <laughs> Don't be the last guy out the door. You need to... And, that, and that's in Ray Dalio's thing as well, talking about the German uh, Deutschmark back, you know, bet- between World 1 and 2, um, the hyperinflation that was experienced there. And, yeah. you know, trying to reassure people. And, and the fascinating thing of that is, is reading the headlines of the newspapers at the time. And I thought that was such a valuable insight into history. I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer that you know I used to study, as I said, technical analysis and a bit of like GAN things and, and cycles. I'm very big on cycles. Um, your hindsight becomes your foresight. You know, if you look at history, and my dad is a history teacher, so potentially it's rubbed off on me. Um, you know, you can learn from the lessons of the past, and I think people should you know heed that. I mean, look at Bitcoin. You know, it's a, the tulip bubble. The tulip. I think it actually exceeded the mania. But witnessing, witnessing it firsthand, it, it, it resonates with you a bit more. So I think trying to put yourself back there and read a newspaper and be, oh, what would that have been like? When you think about it in that respect, it, it, obviously different times and different technology, but things and people will do the same things. People drive markets and they don't change that much. And so you've got the hysteria of Bitcoin and you've got a stock like Tesla who's experienced not quite a stratospheric rise, but um, relatively a stock with plenty of hysteria around <laughs> it as well. You've been, I think you've been publicly short Tesla on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like you've inferred it anyway. Uh, how are you feeling about uh, Tesla? I think, um, as I was saying, like higher conviction positions. We typically size our short positions a lot smaller than our uh, longs. The markets tend to go up and want to go up. Um, you know, I first, I remember when I was on, on uh, prior to starting the fund I remember reading a book about uh, or Elon Musk's biography and thinking wow like how amazing is this SpaceX business and what a guy and yeah. sort of looked starting to take a deeper look at the business and I always knew it was expensive and then I guess when we started the fund and could access those type of markets it's about probably doing more detailed work in them and um, I think just seeing the flood of EV vehicles coming onto the yeah. market competition they have no real moat and someone put it very well and, and we went in Teslas and things in the US and they are phenomenal yeah. but you fall in love with the drivetrain not the the car so to speak yeah. I mean if you get in a Porsche Taycan and it's you know drives exactly the same as Tesla but it's got better features and warranty and it's a brand you know you what what makes you choose the Tesla over that there's no yeah. real moat and you know as more and more EVs come to the market it probably changes so we were relatively confident uh and we started off very small and, as I said, sort of built the position. I remember when um, Elon... And, and, again, he's like a, a idealistic sort of person and yeah. people look up to him. And, I, you know, I respect the guy. I think he's you know, phenomenal. He's done great things. But yeah. that business... I, I've also been a, a stockbroker and, I guess, somewhat of a promoter. You get it. When things are going to unwind, you can almost feel the desperation yeah. of the people pushing that long trade. Like, it's still good, it's still good, it's still good. And I guess um, his, 
I don't know, public persona in a way, like on Twitter and, you know, I like Twitter and finding yeah. information and it's a valuable way to, I guess, research things in detail and Tesla Q or whatever they call it is amazing. There's guys there that... Yeah. You know, he's taking to, one of them to court now, isn't he? He's taking Shibushka a few of them. or is it Shibushka? Yeah, or I think Shibushka so. Or? There's another guy they he, they picked on as well, and they ran. He got him fired from his job, didn't he? Or yeah, he, he stood um, over him. Matanaskepic. That's him. right. Yeah. Um, but you know that that person, when you start uh, going after, I guess individuals. Yes, because like, you wonder why would they care if you're worth twenty million bucks and your I mean, company's going to go to the moon? Why would you bother what people are writing? I mean, he's like a billionaire guy. You know, why why do you care what some yeah. I mean, I got people might say things about us or whatever. I mean, you've probably been on the other side of or you didn't kick it well or whatever, you know. Yeah. And, and I guess it's about blocking it out and you've got your own thing. So why worry about that person who doesn't influence your life? And well, it only hurts if you think it's true. Well, I think they probably are on the money, and he's so worried. And I mean, look at the level of executives leaving the company. That's yeah. a ma- there's so many red flags that appear on that business. And we, um, as I said, I like to think about the asymmetry. Um, you know, risk less than I'm going to make. When he tweeted about that Tesla buyout at 420, I was yeah. at a, a mining conference. I remember, you know, waking up and saying, obviously time zone, but um, waking up and being like, oh, wow, what's going on here? Like, you know, and then reading it and thinking, how could you finance that? Who's going to do that? Yeah. This business is trading at, you know, huge valuations. It burns money. And, you know, eventually as it started to become apparent that it was not true, you know, the ramifications from that were going to be pretty significant. And probably, you know, the slap on the wrist from the SEC was probably, you know, just that, a very, very light slap. Um, you know, there's probably other people that go to jail for doing that. Yeah. I mean, there's CEOs probably in Australia, you couldn't dream of saying something like that. Like, imagine the head of BHP or Commonwealth Bank coming out and saying, we're going to get bought out. I mean, you know, there's huge, I guess, things behind the scenes and it's quite, it was quite strange that happened but you could measure the downside your downside yeah. it went to like say 360 to you know 420 you risk 60 bucks you know and i sort of think right now the company should actually probably be fairly valued around around that 60 dollar mark um you know and then but things will probably change in the near future and potentially the the debt will you know you've got that flame at your back if you've got a lot of debt and and the the value of their uh their bonds has been you know, falling and, and essentially the yields are going up a lot. So I think the credit holders are starting to realise that potentially they're not getting paid back. And, you know, there's emails going around recently of like, oh, you've only got cash for 10 months or... I mean, what company says that? And, and, and I guess there's a lot of things there that are starting to, to weigh on it, drop below $200 for the first time last night. So, you know, we'd built the position as it started to move in our favour and um, we're talking about time zone difference. The other night they came out with their 10Q and it was... Or a few weeks ago, and it was um, terrible. I mean, it read terribly, and the stock was flat in the pre-market. So <laughs> I just got more borrow, and we shorted more. I think the I think what will eventually happen is the borrow cost will probably rise so much yeah. that um, you know you, the downside becomes or it drops so far. So we'll see how it plays out. It's uh, so what, what's the borrow cost now for a year? Typically, you want to rent stock for a year. I mean, typically on GC borrow rate is like seventy five basis points. Okay. Typically on big names, but then you know there's Beyond Meat or a um, oh, I yeah. remember Tilray. Sometimes it's like a, over a hundred percent. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, but they're so overvalued. So what was my medics? What did my medics get? Up I looked to at my medics really after watching. Um, uh, I think I watched. Again, like I sort of said, the way I like to invest is you always get a thesis. Someone will bring you an idea. So you need to have, like, are they right? Are they wrong? And I remember looking into that MyMedics thing and thinking, oh, when we were doing a bit of biotech stuff and um, thinking, oh, wow, this sounds really like 
bad. I mean, these things, this this is not looking... I mean, this yeah. stuff... And, I, you know, cross-checked with a few people in the industry and they were sort of saying, this looks like a scam almost. Yeah. Um, and I remember asking for the borrow cost and it was something exorbitant. I can't remember off the top of my head, like maybe 60% or I don't know, it was crazy. Yeah, okay. I just remember asking, looking at the short interest, it was really high. And then you look at, you know, options or other things and the vol costs are huge. Yeah. So it ends up being... Um, too expensive um ideally you know you want to be able to borrow cheaply and if i guess you learn that uh it takes a lot longer like tesla looked like it was coming undone in the 13 months or so or 14 months that we've been going now it's sort of i think since the start i've had my eye on it and it took a little while before we really entered and when all that stuff happened as i said probably entered a lot bigger relative to thinking it was going to fall further um but man there's been so many times you think oh, this thing's done now. It looks like it's going to be completely just falling through the floor. And then it bounces again. Yeah. Elon's on Twitter yeah. and saving the day. Yeah. So I think, you know, those mimetics and things, if you're in a trade and you've got huge exorbitant borrow cost um, and you want to hold it and it might take a year to play out, you just burn away the profit. Yeah. Risk reward and cost of carry, you know, it's, it's, um, so, you know, a lot of, I always joke with our um, prime break sometimes and say, Oh, why is it always the best ones cost yeah. so much? Yeah, <laughs> they're expensive for a reason, I yeah. guess. Yeah, and so I, lastly, just finish off. I was just sitting through a, a presentation that you gave uh, that will interest a lot of our, our listeners around the housing market, which is obviously pretty relevant to uh, most people in Australia. Uh, where do you see that sit currently? I laugh. I um, the liberal upset victory on the weekend. I said, uh, if you, you one thing you learn is don't don't go after the Aussies housing yeah right? don't you take our franking credits and don't yeah. you take and uh, talk down our housing market um and that I think probably swung it you know I sort of mentioned that off the cuff is that the two swing states really Queensland and probably I mean WA is quite liberal but um they've had a tough time with commodities and the property markets and in particular and I mentioned in West Australia since probably about 2012-13 is we've had a almost bear market and recessionary like conditions um I think people are negative equity in a much bigger way um, and that has probably weighed on it and sort of swung it. I tend to think, I mean, now you just saw, I think just today, APRA was saying they're going to remove the 7% requirement on lending that they were imposing to say if a borrower can't meet 7%, which, you know, we talk about inflationary stuff. Imagine if it does come and you have to yeah. push rates back up, what happens? So definitely... Um, they're definitely trying to come back in and, and help it, but these things tend to take time. And like probably the currency in a way, it, it's people's confidence of, you know, is it going to recover or be bigger? I think, you know, Melbourne, the East Coast of Melbourne, Sydney in particular, um, it was almost the greater fool theory. Like, yeah. is there someone else who thinks it's going to keep going up further that I can kick the can down the road for um, a bit later? And I, I even heard something recently, the turnover, like, so the period between uh, buying a house and selling a house... Um, in the last few years, people were flipping houses far yeah. more, which is the capital value was increasing so much more. Um, is it sustainable? Probably not. Does it bounce back? You know, eventually. But I just, I, I just don't think the gains that our parents and like people have experienced or the baby boomer generation has experienced will be for the next generation now. I think yeah. it's going to be a lot harder, um, a lot more sustainable and slower. And when it does turn, I mean, I sold a house in, I was living in Perth. I left Perth in 2007. It's now 12 years later, that house is still worth more when I sold it than it would be today. So uh, the cycles can be quite a long time. I, I know the Perth cycle's much more volatile in Melbourne and mm. Sydney, but... Um, 
I think Perth bounces back soon. I mean, we've underdeveloped, as you sort of mentioned, from uh, pre like post GFC. There was a period where there was a lot of building, I guess, with the China um, stimulus. But we've probably underdeveloped. So um, it's I'm, hard to see how it's not closer than the eastern states, considering mm. it's been so soft for so long, and, and we've enjoyed this boom. And commodities will typically, I mean, the jobs will start again, and people move yeah. from the east to the west if construction drops. So. It sort of is a little bit of a two-speed yeah. uh, nation in a way, and it has been probably since the GFC. So I'm, I'm semi-torn. I'm, I, I, I'm a bear on property in general and probably Aussie housing market, yet yeah. probably need to get in the market at some point for you know, family reasons and you know, keep the wife happy, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we say, a, uh, uh, if you're investing, um, sometimes it's not always the... Uh, most rational decision if yeah. it's, but but um you know happiness and, and other things do come into it so it's having a happy wife is pretty rational i would have thought happy wife happy life that's right so um no something that we've happy been man at. happy clan we run in our house scott it's yet to really take off but i uh i keep saying it yeah exactly well i mean that, I'll, I'll take that on board <laughs> anyway on that note thanks very much for giving up the time really appreciate it and uh always love being able to chat to you so thanks very much yeah thanks for having us and uh hopefully go well cheers, cheers. Thanks again to Scott for giving me some of his time and sitting down and walking me through his investment philosophy. Some of my key takeaways were his back of envelope way to analyse a company, specifically looking it through the lens of the people, the project and the capital structure. I've seen firsthand the sort of diligence Scott does on his deals. Him to take us inside his investment mind was a great experience for me and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I've loved making season one of Masters of the Market for me to sit down and have a conversation with some of the people I look up to and try and learn off has been a wonderful experience. For everyone who subscribed to the podcast and had a listen, I couldn't thank you enough. I hope you got something out of it and I hope you enjoyed it. Once again, I'd like to thank the support given to us for this podcast by Think Markets. If you want more information, head to thinkmarkets.com or download their Think Trader app if you're looking to trade in currencies, commodities, indices, stocks or CFDs. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review.